Our scripture this morning is in 1 Chronicles 9, verses 1 through 2, which you can find in your Pew Bibles on page 341. 1 Chronicles 9, verses 1 through 2. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the books of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. Good morning. It's good to be with you all today. We are beginning this morning a series from the books of First and Second Chronicles, and we're ta- titling our time in the Word together, Building a House for God's Name. And we're going to be in these books, uh, Lord willing, at least through the rest of the year, um, to focus in on God's heart for his people, God's heart for his purposes. Um, What I want to do this morning, though, is as we start our time here, I want to give a brief apologetic uh, for us to not rush past parts of the scripture that may be more difficult for us or hard to understand or maybe uh, what you might consider boring. Uh, this morning I could have had us read any portion of what is nine chapters at the beginning of Chronicles of Genealogy. But what I want to do this morning is actually give an apologetic for this book and give an apologetic for God's purposes and his heart in this book as we step into it in this season. And I, I have two reasons why we're going to be in Chronicles for this next season. Number one is... We as a church have a distinct commitment to preach the whole counsel of God. We have a distinct commitment to preach the entirety of God's word. From Genesis to Revelation, every word that we have within this holy scripture is breathed out by God himself and is for our building up, for correcting how we see ourselves and see God and understand our way in the world and what his purposes are and how we are to live in agreement with who he is. They are beautiful and rich and wonderful and we are committed to preaching all of it. The parts that we may be quick to rush over, the parts that we may be quick to want to make an apology for, the parts that we may not understand, we want to preach it all. And so we have a deep commitment to preaching the whole counsel of God. But also, I believe that in the books of Chronicles, where we find ourselves in our moment together as a spiritual family, I think these books actually have a really unique and specific message to us that I I, I think we can understand and derive and learn from and grow from and be edified by. So, 
We're going to spend some time here, but today I want to give an apologetic for this, these books and just situate them for us, both in their purpose, where they were written, why they were written, and uh, a broad overview of the themes and things that we're going to find in them. So that's our hope for today. Let me pray for us, and then we will dive in together. Glorious Father, we just thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that your word is like the finest gold, more precious than silver, sweeter than the honeycomb. God, your word is glorious and wonderful. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that you did not leave us without a witness of what you are like and what you long for, what you have done how you have brought forth your purposes in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you have spoken. God, this morning I ask that you would inflame our hearts with a greater love for your word. Would you captivate our imaginations with a longing for your purposes? God, and would you ultimately remind us of why we were made, to live in your presence, to know you, that we might have life in you and in your son, Christ Jesus. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So look with me at the notes here, uh, the introduction this morning. I want to just read a couple scriptures again, giving you a broader scriptural apologetic for why you should care about Chronicles, why these books matter to you. Number one is found in Paul's words to Timothy in the second letter of Timothy, verse, uh, chapter three, verse 16. Paul says, all scripture, everybody say all scripture. all scripture. Now Chronicles is part of all scripture, right? All scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God. What that means is it's inspired. It's his holy word made known to his people. Every single word of this book is breathed out by God himself, that you and I might know him, that we might love him, that we might come in agreements with what he desires, his person and his purposes in the world. He's given this to us as a, as a wonderful gift, right? It's inspired by God. It's infallible. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. It means what he says goes. We don't get to come along and go, I don't like that part. I'm going to put it over here. I don't like that part. I'm going to push it to the side. Every single one of these words is from his holy heart. And we have to deal with that. We get to come into agreement with it. We don't get to make it come into agreement with what we want. Okay? So, all scripture is breathed out by God. And what's it for? It's profitable. So this book, even the nine chapters of genealogy at the beginning, even all of the, the, the labor and administration and names and money that goes into putting the temple together in chapter 23 to 26 of First Chronicles, all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, meaning to call into question 
the ways that we think about the world and the ways that we are prone to wander and live in darkness and be perverted in the thinking of our mind for correcting us, for training us in righteousness so that the man of God might be complete, whole, flourishing, equipped for every good work. Have I convinced you? Okay. Well, we're not done. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses declares, as he's talking about and recounting the time when he fed the children of Israel in the wilderness with manna, and they had to live in this trust-filled obedience to the Lord day after day. And he said, I actually designed it that way because I wanted you to know something. I wanted you to know that you do not live by bread alone. But what do you live by? By every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. All scripture is breathed out by God. Profitable for our teaching and reproof and correction and reordering and training in righteousness. That we might live by God's words. Right? This is our hope. This is our belief here. And then I love this prayer. You could put several of them here. Go read Psalm 119. It's a wonderful meditation on the glorious nature of God's law, his word, his commandments. But I love the prayer in verse 18. Would you open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law? Would you show us, God, who you are, what you're like? Would you captivate us and keep us by the revelation of your word? So the books of First and Second Chronicles are a very important and essential part of the Old Testament. Within these two books, we find a remarkably rich telling of Israel's history with a particular focus on two things. You're going to find two main uh, center points of this book. The focal points of the telling of this story are David's royal dynasty, right? So we all know David, the man after God's own heart, the shepherd uh, who was taken and ascended to the throne. He defeated Goliath. He was set as king over Israel, and he brought a season of success and uh, glory to the nation of Israel. And then from his children, the kings of Israel uh, came. And so the, the chronicler is orienting as one of the pillars of what he wants to look at David's royal dynasty, right? So you're going to see uh, with, with fresh eyes as you read through this, what he's doing is telling the story of David and Solomon mostly, and then telling the story of the kings that came from David after him. But there's a second kind of pillar upon which Chronicles is placed, right? You have the Davidic royal dynasty, but you also have the centrality of the temple in the life of Israel's worship. So the story situates around these two realities. The primary message, you could say, of the books of Chronicles are this. God's people are designed to live under God's rightful king 
which we know now in uh, living this side of the New Testament, the son of David, the king over all the earth is Jesus of Nazareth, right? The one who lived and died and was rose, risen again, ascended to the right hand of the father who has established the church, who sent his spirit. We worship up under him as the king of all the earth, right? So the message of Chronicles is the people of God are designed to live under the right rule of the right king and in rightly ordered worship to him. That's, that's the message of these books. Letter B, many people are unaware of the riches that are found in these books. This is because much of the material in them is either considered to be what you might believe to be boring, right? Like the genealogies. I was joking with somebody this week and we don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. But I said, I'm tempted to preach six sermons from the genealogies. I do it. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, they're, they're glorious. They're actually glorious if you learn what, what God is doing in and through them. They aren't boring parts to be thrown away. They're actually meant to build us up and remind us of what God's been at work doing since creation and show us that God sits as the sovereign Lord over all of his redemptive purposes. Even when knuckleheads like you and me screw it up at every single turn, he continues to have his way. What a glorious reality. What a glorious reality. And there's a lot more that we could get in there too. But they might be considered boring or they might just be seen as retelling the things that we already read about in the books of Samuel and Kings. And this is one of the difficult things about the way that our Bible has been ordered as it's passed down to us. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Chronicles actually end the whole Old Testament. And they do so for a purpose. They're meant to remind the people of God when they find themselves in this rebuilding and waiting for God to fill, fulfill his purposes, what matters. They're really important in how they tell that story. So let her see. However, the books provide a necessary perspective on Israel's story and are a needed supplement to biblical theology. To rightly understand these books, it is important that we understand the situation into which they were written, their purpose, and some of the basic and general themes that are in the book. This will help us discern what God is speaking through these books and therefore help us discern what God is speaking to us. Look at Roman numeral two. So let's talk about the situation of Chronicles. This is why I had us read this section in 1 Chronicles 9 this morning. Would you just hear it again? Chapter nine, verses one and two. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies. And these were written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon. So I want you to take in your Bible, if you write in your Bible, underline exile in Babylon. This is an important situation of what's about to happen. Why, why is this book even written? Because of their breach of faith. So they were taken into exile. Now, the first to dwell again, take dwell again and underline it. This is going to give us helpful clues as to where we find ourselves and why this book is written. The first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. So understanding the purpose and themes 
and the theology of these books is built on understanding the situation into which they were written. So the books don't contain in them uh, a note on who wrote them, right? We don't know who wrote them. He doesn't sign it at the end. You know, Paul signs his letters. He tells you who's writing in the New Testament. The letter writers tell you. Throughout a lot of the New Testament books, we have church tradition that tells us who the author was. In the Chronicles, we don't have a, a, a list of who, who wrote this or who compiled it. Or we don't have the specific situation, meaning where are they writing these people to or uh, who they were writing for, right? What we do get is a couple hints, a couple keys that help us situate the book. And I think this illuminates the purpose. So in these two verses, we're given several pieces of information that situate the timing of the writing of Chronicles as after the Babylonian exile, when the people of Israel were beginning to return to the land in order to possess it. So I'm going to spend some time telling this story because those two statements might not mean anything to you. But they're in the Old Testament understanding of what's gone on in the purposes of God. These two realities are massively important. So these two statements, the Babylonian exile and returning to the land, they are books of meaning to the person that heard this. So we have to do a little work to understand them. So to the readers of Chronicles, the first readers, these verses would have situated them in a story tracing back all the way to the beginning of creation itself, right? This is why the chronicler starts with Adam, right? If you go back to one verse one, he doesn't even, he doesn't even situate anything. He just starts Adam. And then he starts telling name, 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 name. He wants to situate this all the way back to the beginning of creation. However, for us, we have to do some work understanding the nature of the story to understand where these books are situated, right? So again, the chronicler wants to tell his audience, you are the inheritors of the story of redemption that goes all the way back to creation, that starts with in the beginning, God. This is the story I'm about to tell you. This is where you find yourselves and you are the inheritors of this story. And just like the same things that governed the arc of that story from one generation to the next, uh, and they found themselves in moments seeking to reach for what God was doing by faith, you find yourselves in a place where in your story today, God is seeking something and you are a part of that, right? So this goes all the way back. Look at letter E, the Babylonian exile. So what does he mean when he says they were taken into exile in Babylon? Look at the top of page two. So in the Old Testament worldview, outside of the Exodus, the exile probably uh, possesses the largest um, space in the worldview of how people uh, understood the story. So the Exodus, we're all probably familiar with, is the moment when God 
took the nation of Israel out from slavery under the hands of the Egyptians. He takes them and brings them into the wilderness and they wander around. And the people of Israel were being ready to be brought into the land that had been promised to Abraham way back hundreds and hundreds of years before then, right? They're getting ready to go into the land. And as they are, Moses tells again the story of the covenant and he tells again the law to the children of Israel. That's the book of Deuteronomy. In his retelling of this, Moses outlines the covenant blessings that will come to God's people through obedience and the covenant curses tied to their disobedience once they enter the land, right? So Moses takes them and he says, this is the law that God gave you. And when you come into the land, if you obey these things and you walk in a spirit of obedience, these are the blessings that will be towards you and your families. If you disobey these things, these are the curses that will come against you because of your disobedience. Ultimately, we see in Deuteronomy 28, God promises that the end result of disobedience and the high point of these curses will be being taken away into exile. Look at Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth. They will swoop down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. So they come into the land under the leadership of Joshua. The children of Israel, they spend many years seeking to drive out the people that dwell in the land. After they become established in Canaan, the next several centuries were marked by a cycle of disobedience, discipline, repentance, and deliverance, right? This is what you see in the book of Judges. There's this cycle that keeps happening. The people are disobedient. God disciplines them. They turn and repent. He raises up a deliverer. They see some prosperity and reprieve, and then they disobey again. And it all starts again, right? And it happens again and again and again. And Moses had told them in Deuteronomy 30 that they were going to be unable to walk in obedience when they came into the land because their hearts were hardened. They, they needed something more than just these external laws. They actually needed a change of heart. They needed to be circumcised in their hearts, Moses told them. Look at number five. So around 1000 BC, the monarchy was established in Israel under the leadership of Saul. Right? You can read that story in 1 Samuel 8 to 10. The nation of Israel would be unified under one king. So Saul is the king over Israel, and then David, and then David's son Solomon. Under those three men, the nation of Israel was one people. The 12 tribes were one nation. But after Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two parts at the time of Rehoboam. You can go read that story on your own, 1 Kings 12, but it's a fascinating story. Rehoboam comes to the, uh, the, the place of authority and he gets this idea of rather than listening to these wise, seasoned counselors in his life, he goes to his high school buddies and says, hey man, what should we do? We got the power now. And they're like, double down. And he's like, dude, awesome. 
And he does. And the Lord takes the kingdom and rips it apart from him. He takes 10 tribes and they establish a new kingdom in the north. And then two tribes remain in the south. That's what I have in point six here. From this point forward in Israel's history, there will never be another unified 12 tribes of Israel, right? So David, Solomon, and then Solomon's son, the 12 tribes get ripped into two. 10 tribes are the Northern kingdom. And as you read the Old Testament, this is what they talk about. It's called Israel or Ephraim. So when you're reading and you see those words, it's usually talking about the Northern kingdom. And then there's the southern kingdom known as Judah. So the northern kingdom immediately separates themselves from the rightly ordered worship of the Lord at the temple. Jeroboam, it says he makes up a religion off the top of his head. He begins to establish these false worship sites at Bethel and Dan. Now the separation from being united to right worship of the Lord leads to the northern kingdom only walking in the ways of disobedience and descending quickly into darkness. This persists in disobedience leading to a destruction at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC. Now the southern kingdom remained attached to the worship of the Lord and therefore had the potential to experience times of reprieve and return through their path of disobedience. And we see this, and we'll talk about this when we're in Chronicles all over the place. When a king comes to power and renews rightly ordered worship around what God had given, they see times of reprieve and times of refreshing, and times of renewal. And when the king abandons that, we see greater times of destruction. So the rebellion and disobedience ultimately leads to their own destruction of the southern kingdom at the hands of Babylon. So this invasion, Nebuchadnezzar, who you read about in uh, Second Kings, you read about him in Daniel, he is the Babylonian king and he deports all of the people from Judah to Babylon in three waves and ultimately destroys the city and the temple in 586, taking them 700 miles to the east to live in captivity. Look at letter F, the return to the land. So the first situation point, right? He says, after the exile to Babylon that we, we experienced because of our breach of faith, People began to dwell again, verse 2. So after 70 years in Babylon, as promised by the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, the Persian king Cyrus decreed the people of Israel to return to their land and rebuild the temple. This is actually the note that Chronicles ends on. It wants us to be left with God is still at work. He even can use a pagan king to send his people back to get what God wants. It's remarkable. But the narrative of the struggles and success of Israel in this time after the return are recounted in Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophetic ministry of Haggai and not Nehemiah, Zechariah, sorry, during this period. In this situation, this is the situation, number three, that the books of Chronicles are written into. 
The author highlights that the exile has happened because of Israel's treachery, but the first fruits of the people had begun to resettle into the land of Jerusalem. Look at the top of page three. So this is the situation. This helps us understand the purpose of why the author wrote this book. Because here's, here's, a, here's a piece of um, fun information for you. Anytime you ever read a book, you need to be remarkably discerning and astute in understanding that every book that someone writes is trying to shape how you think about things, right? There's a million things they could have chosen to put in and to leave out. Why did they put in what they did and leave out what they left out? Now we have to ask that even more when we go, if the ultimate author is God Almighty, why did he tell it the way that he told it, right? This is a remarkable privilege that we get to have as students of the scripture. We need to go, why does Chronicles tell the story the way that it does? There is a purpose. There's a reason, right? There is a reason why God breathed out these words and kept them and watched over them and let them be transmitted down to us and kept and preserved throughout church history. There's a reason. He wants us to see something and know something. It can be difficult to understand, this is letter B, why there is a second telling of Israel's history in the Old Testament, right? Recounting a lot of the same time frame as the books of Samuel and Kings. However, when you begin to look at the situation of the book that we just talked about with the differences in content, I think there is a distinct message of the chronicler and the way he's seeking to encourage, edify, and even elicit a response from those returning from the exile. So in the history of the books of Samuel and Kings, we're given a political history, a national portrait of Israel's life with the establishment of the monarchy through its separation that we just talked about, ultimately to its destruction, right? In these books, there's a lot of energy spent talking about the northern kingdom. What happened there? Their disobedience, the ways that God actually loved them enough to send them prophets to call them back. That's the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, right? This massive part of the kings that doesn't even get talked about in Chronicles. Elijah exists in two places in Chronicles. Once his name is in the genealogy, and once he's referred to as a guy that wrote a letter. The guy that like took on the prophets of Baal, like called fire down from heaven. This, it's, it's unreal, went to heaven in a chariot. He doesn't even get a notable mention. Elisha's not even talked about. Why? Why? Why is there a difference? In the books of Chronicles, there's almost no mention of the northern kingdom, apart from the fact that they separated and left and no longer worshipped with, with Judah at the temple. Letter F, 
There's also very little discussion about the personalities of the different kings, specifically David or Solomon. We don't get much about David's sins, right? All, the only sin that is really talked about related to David is when he takes the census. And the only reason that person puts this one in is because that's how David got the land to build the temple. None of the stuff about David's sinfulness, none of the stuff about Solomon's sinfulness, why does he leave it out, these personalities and the the ways that they functioned as kings in and over the people of God? Rather, the focus of the books is almost entirely centered around the relationship of the people to the temple and the worship of the Lord. Now, this is really hard for us in this moment. I just want to name something. It's really easy for people to come along with chronicles or something like this. And we live in a moment where, how do I want to say this? We are remarkably cynical and pessimistic about power and telling the right story, right? We don't, we don't ever want to leave anything out of a story, right? Especially, especially if it would bring to light the dirty secrets of someone. Right? We don't want to ever leave any of that out. How do you grapple with a book that does that? It doesn't bring any of that stuff to light. And how do you grapple with the fact that God inspired that as a telling of the history? It has a lot to do with God's narrative being really different than ours. That's one thing that we'll probably hit on again and again. Look at letter G. So after an extended introduction in the genealogies, which is chapters one to nine, I'm going to give you a flyover of these books. The narrative focus for a long period is on the time of David and Solomon, particularly as they seek to establish and order the proper worship of the Lord at the temple. That's 1 Chronicles 10 to 2 Chronicles 9. There's very little mention of their failures, They're set up as a type of faithful king who used their power and their resources to establish the right worship of the Lord at the heart of God's people and God's kingdom. The remainder of the book, 2 Chronicles 10 to 36, simply looks at the Davidic kings and assesses each one of them on the basis of whether they were faithful to keep the worship of the Lord at the center of the kingdom or not. This leads us to see the author's primary purpose, in writing Chronicles, is to remind the people of God that their distinction is rightly ordered worship to the Lord. This is the whole point. People of God, you have one thing that makes you unique. That's the point of Chronicles. One thing makes you unique. That you have been given the ability to worship God on his terms. That's the point right? They return to the land. They don't have a king on the throne. They might be tempted to believe that God has failed his promises to them. However, the author of these books wants the people of God to see that the land, the temple, the building itself, even the throne were never the primary things that gave shape to the identity, the purpose, or the success of God's people. 
It was rather the extravagant and wholehearted worship to the Lord at the center of their national life that gave meaning, purpose, and success to them. Their identity, you could say, was to be a people who worshiped the Lord. That was what God wanted. He was seeking what he longed for. Because of this, as they returned to the land to rebuild the temple and establish worship once again, the people of Israel were reminded through these books that God was looking for something. And God is still looking for something. God is still looking for the same thing. How, you, how he accomplishes it has changed, but he's still looking for the same thing. This is what Jesus gets at in John 4, right? The father is looking for something. He's seeking for something. What's he seeking? Worshippers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. This is what the father longs for. This is what he desires. Namely, he wor- looks for and seeks for worshipers who would seek his face in a posture of humble obedience, call upon his name and trust. They did not need national sovereignty. They did not need full possession of the land. They did not even need the glory of the former temple. And just for us in the new covenant, this is the glorious reality. We do not need success in the culture. We do not need big and loud. And we don't need all of these things. All we need is rightly ordered worship of Jesus Christ. That is at the heart and the burning center of what we're doing. That is all we need. That is all we need. They needed, like always, a humble heart of extravagant devotion to the Lord, seeking his presence and power continually. So that's the purpose. This is why he's writing. He wants to stir up the readers to go, hey, we're finding ourselves coming back from exile. We don't have what we used to have. David had all this extravagant stuff and God's not against extravagantly giving in order to rightly orient his worship. If, if that's the season of provision, he wants it. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. But they're finding themselves small, hard, difficult, not what it once was. And they would be tempted to despair and draw back. And the author of Chronicles is wanting to provoke them and to say, don't get caught up in all this other stuff. At the heart, what God longs for is his people to come before him with humility and contrition to seek his face in the way that he has asked them to. That is at the center of God's purposes. So I want to give a couple themes, and I'm just going to fly through these real fast as we enter into this season. A couple themes that we'll see again and again. Number one is the temple and worship. So at the heart of the books of Chronicles is the preparation for, right? You get all this time and energy and money and administration. The building of, the maintenance of temple worship. So David and Solomon are seen as the model of godly kings, meaning they used their strength and their position and their power to facilitate rightly ordered worship. And then every king is evaluated on that basis from that point. The importance of this theme can even be seen from the beginning of the work in the genealogies themselves. We'll we'll actually look at this at some point in the weeks to come. Look at letter B, a theology of pursuit. One of the primary concepts found in the Chronicles is the concept of seeking the Lord. 
This defines the heart posture of God's people. On the other hand, and it's closely tied to the, the um, opposite of this, which we find again and again, is when Israel broke faith or they walked in treacherous ways, which was pursuing the worship of other gods, failing to seek the Lord in the manner that he desired. The concept of pursuing the face of God is placed front and center to the chronicler at very important times in the narrative. Right, we see in First Chronicles 16, when the, te- uh, the tabernacle is established, the song breaks forth, and almost immediately we see the people called to seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. This is to be the definition of what the, the family life of Israel was meant to be around, the people of God. The episodic retelling of each of the Davidic kings as their own story gives us an insight uh, to that the chronicler understands every generation is responsible to seek the face of the Lord anew. Also, we see that each generation is given the opportunity to repent and return to him and receive blessing from his hand. Right? So one of the things that the chronicler, as we read it, As the people of God, what we need to come face to face with is something like this. Is at the forefront of our lives before the Lord a rightly ordered pursuit of his face. He has welcomed us into his family. He's given us the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. He has made a way for us to have access into his holy presence. Do we rightly order our lives around seeking him continually, seeking his face, seeking his presence? We see this in 2 Chronicles 7. This is a a, a theme that you're going to find throughout it. If my people who are called by my name, if they humble themselves, if they pray, if they seek my face, if they turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. What he wants all of us to hear is, no matter how dark it is, there's always hope that God will be at work, that God will break in, that God will bring times of renewal and refreshing. This is what Peter picks up on in Acts chapter three. Repent. Why? So that times of refreshing might come from the hand of the Lord. This is a call to the people of God to have a posture of self-awareness and Holy Spirit-driven conviction of are we ordering our life together and individually around pursuing God's presence and purposes. And lastly, we do have a theology of hope. One of the gifts of these books is a God-focused presentation of history. I don't think you can walk away from these books without seeing that God himself presides over human history to order and establish his purposes and fulfill his covenant despite the continued failings of humanity again and again. Right? Even the, even the genealogies, right? You just read from them. And if you know the stories, you know how broken and sinful 
and wicked and failing and enemies of God these people were. And what you see is God again and again and again and again demonstrating his mercy, demonstrating that he is going to fulfill his purposes. He is going to bring forth his ways even in the midst of darkness and hopelessness. And these books are designed to get your eyes off yourself and onto the God who presides over history and who has watched over his purposes and plans and is, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, working all things according to the counsel of his will. His own desire, his own plans, his own purposes, ultimately fulfilled and accomplished in the man Jesus Christ, in the only Son of God who came and lived and died and was raised from the dead, ascended on high, who is the king over all things, who has birthed his family, the church, and who now any and all who call upon his name will be saved. He worked his purpose and has accomplished his purpose. And so we get to look back at these things and go, God, you did not leave people to their own design even when they ran far away from you. You made a way where there was no way. And now, as those that live on this side of the story, we get to look back at Jesus and go, thank you. Thank you, God of history, that you always bring forth your purposes according to what you promised. Amen and amen. Would you stand with me?